I don't remember if the man in uniform had a gun. It's been almost 20 years after all. But I do know it wouldn't have mattered if he had. We were Western backpackers at a world-famous tourist attraction within 15 minutes of a setting sun. We were armed with cameras. No security guard had any hope of stopping us from getting our rightful sunset photos. We believed down to the core of our backpacking souls that we were entitled to our sunset picture, just as we felt no waterfall must go unphotographed, nor would we dare miss that sunrise photo after hiking all night to the top of a volcano. We were at Borobudur, the world's largest Buddhist temple, and, apparently, it was closing time. Clearly, no one had consulted with us, nor the setting sun, when the closing hours were established. The uniformed security guard approached from below and gestured for us to come down from the upper platforms of the stone structure. With the sun only minutes from dipping below the horizon, I looked around at my co-conspirators, Julie and Andreas, and knew we wouldn't budge. Our resolve was firm, our position clear, our cameras focused. Having the high ground, we had an advantage. I initially played dumb, happy to shrug my shoulders and feign that I couldn't understand what the guard was asking. Andreas, the German guy we had befriended earlier in the trip, pointed towards the sun, as if that should have settled the matter without any further need for debate. The result was a look of exasperation by that local man who had to be thinking, don't you guys have daily sunsets in your countries? Eventually, the guard gave up and disappeared, probably knowing he would have to do this all over again the next day with a new group of camera-toting travelers. As the sun began to set, we took our shots and then descended the stone temple. In those pre-digital days, we wouldn't be sure of our photographic success until the film was developed, so it could be days or weeks until we saw the results, but we felt proud and accomplished as we made our way to the exit gate, which was closed and locked. In retrospect, this shouldn't have surprised us because, well, that kind security guard had repeatedly tried to tell us. Borobudur was closed. We walked along the perimeter fence looking for an alternative exit before finally realizing today would be the day we break out of a famous monument. One successful fence scaling later, we made our way to the bus terminal where earlier in the day we had been dropped off. It was empty and dark. See setting sun above. There were no buses to be seen and no personnel around. Like the temple grounds, the bus station was also closed. Again, in retrospect, I couldn't deny the logic. It only made sense the bus schedules would sync up with the operating hours of the primary attraction in the area. Unfortunately, nothing was syncing up with the setting sun. Though the bus station may have been closed, a noodle stand was opened, so our hungry brains decided that any problem could be solved over food. As we ate, we saw guesthouse owners across the street standing in their doorways ready to scoop up some new guests. Just as we were salivating for some delicious noodles, we could sense them salivating for our business. As I saw it, though, we didn't need a room at a nearby guest house. We already had rooms in a guest house in Jogjakarta, 25 miles away. Those were the rooms we had already paid for. Those were the rooms with all our stuff. Those were the rooms we had expected to return to at the end of the day after leaving them in the morning. Unfortunately, we were not in Jogjakarta, and with no buses available, we decided to walk across the road to explore our options. I don't remember exactly how much a room would have cost, but I can tell you with certainty it was next to nothing. Though we were backpackers on a shoestring budget, in general, Indonesia was extremely affordable, but it wasn't about the money. I still wasn't ready to give up. As Julie and Andreas negotiated with one of the guesthouse owners, I looked down the dark road in the direction of where we needed to go. I looked in the other direction and saw lights of cars and motorcycles rapidly approaching before zipping past. 
the three of us needed to go in a direction. Many vehicles were also going in that same direction. What if there were some way we could be in one of those vehicles already going in that direction? Eureka! It was as if I had discovered, no, invented the idea of hitchhiking. It was something completely new. At that moment, down to the core of my soul, I felt that through all of time and humankind, this concept had not existed until I had brought it to life. No one had been brilliant enough to realize that if one needed to go in a particular direction and that other people were going in that same direction, one could somehow signal or gesture to the other about sharing that ride. How was I the only one to have conceived of this brilliant idea of hitching a ride? I'm a genius, ready to share with the world my breakthrough idea. Maybe I'd call it hitch riding or hitch traveling. Patent pending. I told Julie and Andreas about my incredible new idea, and they were immediately up for it. Ignoring the possibility that we could end up kidnapped or murdered, we believed the only downside was that if nobody picked us up, we'd end up having to split the cost of a $2 room for the night. We ran to the edge of the road and began excitedly waving and gesturing as car after car whizzed by us in the darkness. Most of those drivers probably thought us crazy, but we didn't care. We had not been defeated by the security guard, we had not been defeated by the fence, when we were not going to let a minor lack of transportation prevent us from getting where we wanted to go. It wasn't long before a tiny white pickup truck, the kind commonly found throughout Asia, which is not much larger than a golf cart, pulled over to the side of the road. Our negotiation with the driver and his passenger consisted solely of an enthusiastic Jogja, Jogja, and their okay, okay response, but it was clear they were as thrilled with the idea as we were. Immediately, I leapt into the back of the truck and settled into a comfortable position atop their soft yet undefined cargo. Julie joined me in the back while Andrea sat in the cab with our new best friends. Barreling down the road, Julie and I held on tightly to the sides of the truck as we stared at the stars and laughed, thoroughly tickled with how things were turning out. At one point, we did turn off the main road and made a quick detour to a darkened warehouse. Our driver said he needed to go inside and pick something up, though I had a quick flashback to the beginning of Glenn Fry's Smuggler's Blues video and half expected to hear gunshots and our driver running out of the warehouse yelling, Drive! Drive! Nothing like that happened, and we were quickly back on our way. After about ten minutes, we turned into a main highway and traveled a short distance before hearing a lot of honking and yelling. We were speeding down the road next to a bus and heard our driver and the driver of the bus shouting back and forth. After some high-speed discussion and confirmation, the bus pulled over to the side of the highway, as did our tiny white pickup truck. That's when it hit me. These guys weren't going to Jogjakarta. They were going somewhere else. Yet that didn't stop them from helping us. They may not have been going to Jogjakarta, but they knew they could get us to a main road with a bus that would get us there. It may sound odd, but when I realized that this was happening, I was even more moved by the half-ride they gave us than if we had gotten door-to-door -door service. Any gesture or offer of assistance is a gift, of course, and we should always appreciate those who go out of their way to help. Yet sometimes it's not just about someone helping you get all the way to your final destination, but it's enough to help you get to the next step. We said goodbye to our transportation hosts, thanking them profusely, and boarded the Jogjakarta-bound bus, soon to return to our already-paid-for guesthouse with all of our stuff. That night, as I lay in bed, I thought back on yet another wonderful day. I got my sunset picture at a World Heritage site. I benefited from the true generosity of complete strangers. And I basically invented the concept of hitchhiking.
Welcome back to all of you great members of the J-Luck Club. It's so good to have you here and here. Here, H-E-A-R as in listening to this, and here as in here with me, which you're not, but it sure feels that way. So, so at least the feeling that you're here with me or that I'm there with you together on this journey. In our last episode, I told you about my side trip to Taiwan, the trip which inspired the email subject line, and 20 years later, the title of the very podcast to which you are now listening. I said it almost feels like a series finale, that everything was wrapped up nicely, a good place to end things. But folks, we have a few more stops on this journey, a few more episodes to go. So, what will happen when this trip and my story ends? Well, hold that thought, dear listeners. I'll get to that in a moment. But what if you didn't listen to the last episode, or you missed a few along the way, or you want to be ready when the remaining precious episodes are released? Well, the best thing you can do is subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the J Luck Club podcast on your favorite podcast app. But here's a little members-only secret. You can also listen on your non-favorite podcast app. You could hate the podcast app, and you could still listen to the J Luck Club podcast. So it doesn't really matter where you do it, just subscribe. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can find all episodes at thejlucklubpodcast.com. And if you want more than just the episodes, you want to see the emails, some pictures, some extras, then head over to honeyroastedtshirts.com. As always, the J Luck Club podcast is presented by Honey Roasted T-Shirts. Honey Roasted T-Shirts, they don't make T-Shirts, but if they did, they'd be honey roasted. But there's something else you can do there. Dalbot! No, 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 that's not what I meant, but thanks for reminding me. You can download your very own copy of the Dalbot Diddy from Apple Music or stream it wherever you get your music. So, dear listeners, we are nearing the end of my story and our journey together. Yes, you can listen and re-listen to your favorite episodes again and again, but this trip will be coming to an end. And so what does one do to remember a special trip? Well, one option is to wait 20 years and then make a podcast reliving, remembering, and reflecting upon that journey. The more common option? Buy some souvenirs! That's right, the Honey Roasted T-Shirt Souvenir Shop is now open! Head on over to honeyroastedtshirts.com for the J-Luck Club souvenirs. Stickers, magnets, pins, and postcards. No keychains and, well, no t-shirts. But check out the goodies we have. There's even a membership welcome kit, including a membership card. Now folks, I want to assure you that membership to the J-Luck Club is entirely free. The only dues you pay would be the time you spend listening to this show, reading some of the emails, or hearing a story about that time I was so in awe of the beauty of the Balinese rice fields, I really started to feel it through my whole body, including my foot, and then realized a bunch of ants had swarmed my feet and were making a meal of my foot. But if you'd like to have something physical to remember this journey, head on over to honeyroastedtshirts.com and pick up some souvenirs. It helps support this project and also something cool to impress your friends and family. Put that magnet on the refrigerator or that sticker on your laptop or snowboard. It'll be unique for sure. Souvenir inventory, much like our remaining time together, dear listeners, are limited. Check it out, honeyroastedtshirts.com. But let's get on with the show. As you may have noticed, I seem to lose all abilities of articulation when I'm overwhelmingly impressed by a place. I told you how in my journal I would sometimes just write, So cool! and a number of exclamation points. Well, I tell you, I could fill a whole book 
of exclamation points for how I felt about Indonesia. My two months in Indonesia were incredible. I'm not sure why I thought one email would be sufficient to cover it. Those of you who may remember episode 7, check it out. I wrote two emails just to cover 24 hours in Kathmandu. I don't know, maybe it's because for those two months in Indonesia, I was truly and fully living my life rather than writing about it. Well, anyways, I mentioned some of the highlights, but get ready, it's a long one. I take you now to an internet cafe in Medan on the island of Sumatra in the country of Indonesia. Date, Monday, April 2nd, 2001. From Jay Schneider. Subject, Jay, the Aussie surfer. U.S. State Department Travel Warning. Office of the Spokesman of Indonesia. February 28, 2001. The Department of State urges American citizens to defer non-essential travel to Indonesia and all travel to Aceh, Maluku Papau, West Timor, Central Kalimantan, and Central Sulawesi. Indonesia is experiencing a major political transition and unrest and violence can erupt with little forewarning anywhere in the country. Bombings of religious, political, and business targets have occurred throughout the country. Phew! I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm still recovering from the craziness that is March Madness. For those of you not so up in the world of sports, I'm talking, of course, about the Spring Grand Sumo Tournament in Osaka. Sad to say this year I wasn't able to attend, but thanks to living in this age of the internet, the daily results were always just a few clicks away. Well, after a long, bumpy, cramped bus ride to a town with an internet connection, that is. But March isn't just about sumo, folks. I'm proud to say my students at Himeji Technical High School were invited to play in the National Spring Tournament at Koshien, which, again, for those of you who are unaware, is a very big deal. They lost the first round, internet keeping me in touch again, but for any kid who's ever held a bat in Japan, just going to Koshien is a dream. And finally, in college hoop, my own alma mater, Cal, Go Bears! was invited to the big dance and, in accordance with tradition, eliminated immediately. So I wouldn't blame you for thinking I've spent the past two months just surfing the net and checking sports pages, but I've also surfed real waves. <laughs> Anywho, there's lots to tell. Sorry, it's going to be a long one this time. And I'll be glad to get started after I share with you a childhood memory. On far more occasions than I can begin to count, I remember as a wee little Jay watching TV, playing with the neighbors, or talking on the phone, and having my mother interrupt directing me to do some necessary chore feed the dog, clean my room, put out the fire I'd started in the living room, etc., and I'd try to negotiate more time. Ah, come on, Mom, just one more hour, please. I hope you enjoyed this childhood memory. Indonesia For the past 60 days, the length of the visa, I've been falling in love with Indonesia. It's been such an incredible two months, and I've had so many wonderful experiences, as well as, I'll look back and laugh on this later, though I'm in excruciating discomfort now, adventures. There are too many instances of people being so helpful, inviting me to their homes, making sure I'm on the right bus and off it at the right stop, eagerly wanting to tell me about their country and ask me about mine, whether we spoke a common language or not, and so many more wonderful images and beautiful places and unforgettable experiences. I know I can't tell you everything, and I'll try to keep it brief, but I'm warning you, this update could go on for a while. I hope none of you have work you should be doing. Jay the Australian Upon entering a country, one must fill out an immigration card, half of which is turned into an official and the other half which remains in the passport. 
The information is simple enough, name, profession, passport info, etc., but it's still always a bit of a pain. For me, I'm always stumped with what my occupation should be. So you can imagine my pleasant surprise when, after purchasing my ferry ticket from Singapore to Indonesia's Bantam Island, I was handed an immigration card already filled out by computer. You could also imagine my puzzled surprise to discover that according to the card, I was born in, and a citizen of, Australia. Who knew? I said nothing, and the Indonesian official said nothing, so for the duration of my stay, I'd be Jay Schneider, Australian. Sumatra. Four-hour boat ride, four-hour bus. Hop on another bus. I was assured I would arrive at my destination around midnight. Bus stops at midnight. Everyone gets out and waits at a coffee shop until 6 a.m. We continue the trip. At some point, I cross the equator for the first time in my life, and by 8 a.m., I'm in Bukatinggi, West Sumatra, reunited with my travel mate, Julie. Though I'd wanted to come to Indonesia for some time, it wasn't on my current itinerary, so I really had no plan, I'm just happy to be somewhere new. Julie had a plan. Many, in fact, and new ones kept popping up, or old ones constantly changing. So, I realized I needed to come up with my own plan. The 10 days in a muddy jungle wearing self-made loincloth killing a pig and drinking its blood trek, originally suggested by Julie, was nixed when she realized she wasn't the type of person to go traipsing around half-naked in the muddy jungle for 10 days. I, on the other hand, put myself in that category, but conceded it'd be much more fun with a good friend, or, or mate, to do it with. Where's Ava when I needed her? Instead, we spent our Sumatra days in the hills, on the lake, and on the coast. At one point, I composed a poem about chicken fried rice. On another occasion, while wandering around the streets of Padang, I was invited into the police station, fed lunch, and offered a female officer's hand in marriage. I declined. The woman, not the food. But it was still a great afternoon. Mostly, Sumatra was my introduction to Indonesia, and I was constantly surprised by how friendly and helpful the people were, freely giving advice and direction without trying to sell me something. I'm still a bit jaded from India, I guess. And while we did our best to get off the tourist trail, even when we were on it, we hardly saw other foreign faces. It was rainy and low season anyways, but mostly travelers are staying away from Indonesia given what they've been reading in the papers and watching on CNN. See travel warning above. It's a shame for the people who are missing out on such a wonderful country, and also for the locals who depend on tourist dollars. But I guess it works out great for those of us who do, brave, to come here. After two weeks, we hopped on a Java-bound bus, and about 40 hours later, we were in Jakarta. Throughout my stay in Jakarta, people always made a point of showing me the American embassy. Fools, don't they know I'm Australian? It also happened to be rather close to where I was staying, and this was comforting given the current instability of the country. I had a scene in my mind of a helicopter evacuation from the roof of the embassy, surrounded by a war-torn city, the embassy's American flag folded under my arm, I paused, looking around at the flames and the chaos, tears welling in my eyes, and then board the helicopter, the last passenger on the last craft out of the country. Then I put my arm around the ambassador, comforting him and saying, Don't worry, sir. We'll be back. And he looked back at me in reply, Who the hell are you? What the hell are you doing here? Give me back my flag. But of course, this didn't happen. In fact, even though demonstrations and protests were a daily occurrence in Jakarta, the really good stuff of the blood, tear gas, and flames variety always happened just before or just after I was there. No luck with timing, I guess. Real briefly, the issue, Indonesia is currently in a bad way. Economy in the dumps, ethnic violence, separatist groups causing civil unrest, corruption as usual, yada yada. Most people I spoke with felt the current president, Gustur, had to go and demanded his resignation. In fact, my entire two months in Indonesia, 
I spoke with no one who's had anything positive to say about the current president. There's two sides to every story, of course, and he does have supporters, however, and they have declared they are prepared to shed blood to defend him, so that makes for a rather dicey situation, eh? In spite of the lack of civil unrest in the city, I really enjoyed Jakarta. It wasn't nearly the armpit of Asia it's been made out to be. I think Manila still holds that title. Some of the time was spent visiting Julie's family friends. At one point, we ended up at a two-year-old's birthday party. We also sampled a bit of nightlife, and I left Jakarta with a good impression of it, and truth be known, a desire to return. Not a bad spot at all. Joke Jakarta Java's number one tourist destination and cultural capital was a bit strange due to the lack of visitors, domestic and foreign. All the places which guidebooks guaranteed would be swarming with tourist buses were empty. And again, luck was not on our side. The steaming volcano of Mount Merapi just outside the city had a major eruption dumping ash on the nearby city of Solo two days before we arrived. I miss all the good stuff. But to make the best of it, we did all the cultural things there are to do and saw the biggest Buddhist temple in, insert some geographic zone, here. Of course, we annoyed the guards at closing time, refusing to leave before we exercised our God-given right to a sunset photo. A British bloke led the stand and wouldn't give an inch, his tripod firmly in place, waiting for the sun to dip behind the mountains. Andreas, German, Julie and I held fast as well. The Japanese girl and her Aussie boyfriend couldn't take the heat and broke ranks. We only needed a few more minutes and these guards didn't scare us. We'd all been to countries where guards carried large weapons. We got our pictures, but because of our tardiness, had to climb a fence to get out of the locked temple grounds. It was that or spend the night and be the first inside for the ubiquitous sunrise photo. And by the time we got to the bus station, all the buses had gone for the night. As we saw it, this was not a problem, but an opportunity. With all the cars on the road, somebody had to be headed back to Jogja. It took only ten minutes for a tiny truck to stop, and while Andreas and Julie were figuring out who should ride in the front, I was already halfway in the back, atop a comfortable load, looking at the clear, star-filled skies above. We discovered halfway through the journey that the driver was not, in fact, headed to Jogja. He drove us to a main road where buses were still running, pulled up alongside a bus, and flagged it down for us. Again, I can't forget how helpful the Indonesian people could be. After a great week in Jogja, it was time to move on and with an overnight stop for the obligatory pre-dawn hike up a volcano to see the sunrise, we arrived in... Bali. I was a little disappointed with Bali. There weren't nearly as many young, beautiful native women walking around topless as I had been led to believe. In fact, the only Balinese woman I witnessed shedding her top in the heat of the midday sun was the grandmother of a family who ran the guest house at which I stayed in Ubud, Bali's cultural heart. You can imagine my disappointment. Apart from this letdown, however, Bali was incredible, tempting me at every turn to spend the rest of my time there. Bali is very developed and heavily touristed, but it's still possible to get out of the chaos and back to the paradise, well, minus the scantily clad maidens, it's reputed to be. Bali is where Julie and I, as planned, went our separate ways. Originally, our farewell adventure was going to be a motorcycle tour with a friend of hers from Holland. I had been excited about easy riding around the island, but Julie was on a tight schedule and only had five days to do it, whereas I had no need to be in a rush. I felt it was best to get back on my own, do my own thing, and in my own time. Kuta Beach is the developed resort center of the island, with Polo, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren stores all in attendance, and the golden arches can be seen from any point on the beach. Families can feel at home in luxury hotels, and the not-so-family-oriented can drink and dance the night away in a number of Kuta's notorious clubs. 
Not exactly an island paradise, but I had to at least check it out. Kuda's also overrun with Japanese and Australians, but seeing how I've been missing Japan so much, and for this journey I'm an Aussie, I found their presence comforting. There were also hordes of Javanese teenagers on vacation from school, snapping away pictures of the funny foreign tourists. I should say now, I think I was photographed more in two months in Indonesia than I was in my entire three years in Japan. So I decided to stay a couple days, but nearly stayed a month after meeting Antonio, Italian, Glenn, Washington, D.C., and surfing. Not a person, a water sport. Antonio, Glenn, and I were all solo travelers who met up one day while touring some temples and whatnot around the island. We had a good day of it together, surviving the scorching sun, the hard cells of the market, and the monkey forest. Those beasts are evil, I say. Evil. That night we hit the scene, sending Antonio off to talk to Japanese girls, me feeding him lines of what to say. It was a good laugh. We also came to an important decision. We would surf. Glenn had tried surfing before in Santa Cruz and Costa Rica, and Antonio had given it a go the day before, so I was the only true first-timer. But Papa Schneider taught me how to boogie board and body surf in Hawaii when I was a kid, and, and I'd seen the cinematic classic North Shore about a dozen times, so I had confidence. Good times were had, and not without some degree of success, enough to make me understand why the two Swedish guys in the room next to mine had been there a month. They told me, we surf a couple times a day, eat, read some books, go out at night, and then do it all over again the next day. I totally understood, and that evening was considering changing my life altogether. But a second day of surfing with Glenn, Antonio was on a plane back home, consisted mostly of us floating and sleeping on our rented boards in awe that the ocean could be so flat. This reminded me that the waves can be fickle and made me think perhaps I'd better continue my adventures. If it's my future to be a surf bum, I can do that back in the States. For now, I'd leave it as a fun holiday diversion. Glenn also had to be on his way, his flight to Bangkok the next day, so I headed up to the black sand beaches of Lovina for some snorkeling, more snorkeling, and more low-key beach action. Lovina is smaller and quieter than Kuta, and far more beautiful in my opinion. The rice fields and the mountains were undisturbed by Hard Rock Cafe Bali and the rest. Here I met a family who invited me to stay with them, the grandmother talking to me nonstop, unfazed by the fact I couldn't speak her language. I knew accepting their offer would result in my fluency of the language, but I think it would also have meant marrying the granddaughter who, as beautiful as she was, was at 14 years old, just really made me feel old. I've traveled enough to know when it comes to transportation and schedules, don't ask, don't tell. Just get on the bus and sooner or later, usually later, you'll get there. So when I boarded my Java-bound bus at 3 p.m. and then deboarded again two hours later with all my stuff, sat around for another hour, only to board another bus, I wasn't worried or concerned at all. It always works out. No worry, no hurry, no chicken curry, as my trekking guide in Nepal used to say. And so 15 minutes after boarding the second bus, when we didn't move for the next 12 hours, again, my feathers weren't ruffled in the least. I just slept. When we did begin moving again, it took three hours to inch our way to the ferry, and the 30-minute ferry crossing took two hours, ending in a 1.30 a.m. arrival the next morning, as opposed to the scheduled 7.30 a.m. the second day. So basically, a 16-hour bus ride turned into 34 hours. What is time, anyways? Besides, I got to know the other passengers really well, and one Balinese mother inviting me back to Bali for the festival the following week. Again, a very tempting opportunity, but I think the fix was in here as well, her hinting that she could remedy my non-married status. Her hints weren't actually so subtle. They're more along the lines of, 
If you don't like my daughters, I'm sure I can find you a very nice Balinese wife in my village. Balinese women are very hard workers and make very good wives. Again, her daughters were very nice and were very sweet young girls, but I've got personal hang-ups about marrying a teenager. Other bits on Bali. It turns out the reason for my 13-hour bus delay was that demonstrations had stopped the ferries from running for a day or two, so there was a huge backlog of buses and cars waiting to cross the channel. Also, Bali is one hour ahead of Java. Funny that Julie and I didn't realize this time change for two days. Funnier that it made absolutely no difference in our lives whatsoever. Fortunately, she discovered this time zone shift on the day we had to meet her friend at the airport. And finally, during a festival period in Ubud, I stumbled across an honest-to-gosh, real McCoy, bona fide, not-made-for-tourists-or-TV-and-movies cockfight. That was wild. Man, and I thought mahjong gambling was intense. Back to Java. I had a mission in Java, and yes, it involved erotic temple carvings. As luck would have it, I ran into Andreas at the guesthouse, also on his way back from Bali and points further east. He was a willing and eager partner in crime, and the temple carvings themselves were rather disappointing, being overhyped to attract the tourists, I suppose, but the several bus transfers and local transport adventures to get us there and back made for a great day and a reminder that it's often the journey, not the destination, which make life great. My foot. During our adventure, Andreas noticed a slight limp in my makeshift bandage on my right foot, and I confessed to him what I haven't yet told you. I had a slight owie on my foot. I suppose I didn't mention it because I'm still working out the details of the shark attack story, which would sound infinitely better than the attacked by an evil flip-flop with a grudge story that's closer to the truth. The point is, I had a slight wound, of the open-sore, pus-oozing-out variety. Andreas offered me some iodine so I could properly clean the cut, and this seemed like a good idea. He said to me with an evil grin, But I want to be here when you put it on. I want to see you cry and scream like a little girl. I took off the sock I had protecting the cut and showed it to Andreas. He cried and screamed and ran out of the room. When he returned, after he'd composed himself and I promised not to show it to him again, he demanded I go to a doctor. You have to go to a doctor, Andreas demanded. You think so? Jay, walk it off, Schneider, questioned. Maybe if I just, no, you have to go to a doctor. Yeah, I guess tomorrow I'll, no, tonight, now. Actually, we went to dinner first, and I met Christine, a Canadian graduate student who had been doing research in Kalimantan during the recent massacres and beheadings, over 400. But she didn't hear about any of this until returning to Java. So we said to her, Hey, after dinner, we're going to a hospital. Want to come? Uh, come on, it'll be fun. Can I bring popcorn, she asked. And so the three of us piled into two cycle rickshaws and headed out in search of a doctor. We found one with the staff seemingly content to be absorbed in the football match on TV, and the party began. As the doctor and his attendant cleaned my wound, I directed Andreas, official photographer, to make sure all the angles were covered. And though I thought she was joking, I could have sworn I saw Christine munching away on some popcorn. The doctor and the staff said little, understandably upset at having the soccer match interrupted, and just shrugged off the happening of the strange and mysterious foreigners. They also didn't give much the way of explanation in the bag of drugs they gave me. I've been in Asia long enough to know, don't ask, don't tell. Us Westerners are sure are strange wanting to know what medicines we're taking and why. Nor was I given any advice about dressing and redressing the wound, but at the post-party gathering at the guesthouse, we three examined my goodies, and being reasonably intelligent people, we were able to come up with a healing strategy. And all that cost me a whopping nine U.S. dollars. 
I'm uninsured again, so that came out of my pocket. Jakarta. Again. Andreas and I rode in style to Jakarta, taking the business class train, because the cheap one was full. We were rewarded with super comfortable seats, meals and snacks, movies and music videos, Roxette's greatest hits and Guns N' Roses being my favorite. Once more, hoping to find the city in turmoil and a country on the verge of revolution, we were disappointed, but had a pleasant time of it anyway. Again, I had a great time in the city and left with a good impression. The 60-hour bus ride to Sumatra. I wasn't trying to prove anything. I wasn't trying to be cheap. I wasn't trying to do anything extraordinary by taking the economy bus for 60 hours. You see, there's this whole air conditioning scam running in tropical countries. It's advertised as a luxury amenity, but nine times out of ten, you end up freezing your ass off under full-blast, non-adjustable AC, wondering how it's possible to be so cold in a naturally warm environment. Also with the AC buses, they like to pack other luxuries, such as videos playing at full blast to help you through the wee hours in the morning when it's too cold to sleep. Rather an unpleasant experience. Actually, when Julia and I went from Sumatra to Jakarta, I was hesitant about our non-AC bus ride. I told Julia I was a bit apprehensive about it, but the ride was quite comfortable. The windows opened and closed to regulate heat, we slept well, and when I got off the bus nearly 40 hours later, I felt good. In fact, I could have gone longer if necessary. So with this attitude, I wisely purchased a ticket for the economy bus, laughing at all the suckers boarding the AC bus next door. Well, not all economy buses are created equal. This bus had very uncomfortable bench seats with non-reclining seats. Well, actually some reclined, though not by design nor under anyone's control. I had an aisle seat, and the man next to me, being a sturdy fellow, naturally overflowed into my side. I didn't think this would be such a big deal until they loaded on passengers who would sit on little plastic stools in the aisle, thus restricting my aisle overflow prerogative to which those in my situation are usually entitled. During the night, on those few moments I did find sleep, by the third night you're bound to be tired enough to get some sleep regardless of the conditions. I would awake to find one aisle dweller's head on my shoulder and another who had decided she'd sleep more comfortably with her rear on the corner of my seat. And so it went for 60 hours. Six zero, folks. Think about that. 60 hours. Think about all you've done for the past two and a half days. What have you been doing the past two and a half days of your life? Well, in that same amount of time, I was bussing my way to northern Sumatra. Bukit Lawang, Lake Toba, Medan. I spent the next week in northern Sumatra, though not so far north as Aceh where the separatists and Indonesian army are fighting away. Recovering from my bus ride, reflecting on my past two months in this wonderful country, and just plain relaxing. Thinking a jungle trek was not the best thing for my foot. Much better now, by the way. My time in Bukit Lawang was spent hanging out on the river. I rented an inner tube and tubed my way down the rapids. It was very unregulated and certainly not the safest thing one could have done, but since everyone else was doing it, I figured why not. Sure, my butt banged over a number of rocks but at least those rocks had been smoothed over by the thousands of butts before mine, making for a jolly good ride. I certainly wasn't alone, as hundreds of Sumatrans were up for the day to ride the rapids, eat food, and play music till late. Mid-rapid, I met Meti, who reached out and grabbed my hand and asked, Hello, mister, may we join you? Her brother and her sharing a tube. At the end of our ride, she invited me to join her family, where I was well-fed, before several more tubing runs, with as many as eight or nine of her family members linked together down the rapids, when we tired of this, we sat back and enjoyed the guitar playing of her cousins, 
This is unscientific, but I think one in four Indonesians can play the guitar. And thoroughly enjoyed the afternoon. At one point, I started to wonder if I should excuse myself and go see the afternoon orangutan feeding at the rehabilitation center. It's one of those things you're supposed to do when you come to the spot, and I didn't know if I was missing on an opportunity. Then, as if on cue, one of the funny creatures came down on the other side of the river, perhaps to check out all the commotion. It was a treat not only for me, but for all the locals, as wild sightings are rare without trekking deep into the jungle. It was a great day. At Lake Toba, I woke up, swam, ate, read, swam, ate, wrote, swam, slept, etc., most every day, save for a six-hour stretch where I rented a motorcycle and cruised to a hot spring. And I mean hot. And back to Medan. To arrange my ferry ticket out of the country, visa expires in two days, have Medi show me around town, and since I've got some extra rupia, well, it's only the equivalent of 40 cents an hour, catch up on my e-correspondence. What's next? Well, tomorrow I regain my U.S. citizenship and head back towards Thailand and route to Laos. And after that? Well, to know the future, it's best to look at the past. Jay, don't you think it's about time you came home? Ah, oh, come on, Mom. Just one... No, no, two more months, please. Smart Money says I'm back on U.S. soil in June. Jay, good eye, mates. Schneider. I'm not sure if it was clear. I'm not sure if I made my point. I loved my time in Indonesia. You may be able to understand why that was my longest email to date, and clearly I did not capture all of the amazing moments and experiences I was fortunate enough to have. But anyways, dear members and dear listeners, I've taken up so much of your time, I'll try and keep my bonus comments brief. But yeah, it was two incredible months. Were it not for the inconvenient fact that I was on a 60-day visa, I could have effortlessly stayed for two months more and beyond. Indonesia is beautiful, with many slices of paradise, and I only saw a fraction of it. You know, I don't even think Indonesia knows how many islands make up the country. But within the archipelago, 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 arch you know, that's one of those words I've read and written all my life, but it's not really one of those words I speak. Hmm. Anyways, it's not only large geographically, it's the fourth most populous nation in the world. So that means all kinds of people and cultures and food and regions. And though I've talked about how I've met welcoming and friendly people in every country I've visited, I felt the welcoming warmth and genuine smiles of everyone I met in Indonesia was more powerful than anywhere else I'd been. Oh, and the food. I ate so well. It was great to be reunited with Julie, and I'm so glad I started my Indonesian experience with her. She had some family and connections, so in Jakarta, I ended up at a kid's birthday party and once again, having some experiences of meeting people and going to neighborhoods and homes I wouldn't have if I'd just been a disconnected visitor. And it was great to see Julie again, though it was a bit different. During the course of my travels, certainly, my mind did look towards the future, whether it was the next day, the next week, or the coming years. I was not taking a vacation from life in progress, but my backpacking was the next step in my journey. And just as I didn't always know what my next country would be, I also didn't know what I'd be doing when I finished my travels. I remember laying in the shade under a tree in the Tsar Desert in India, pondering what a future life for myself might look like. Well, I wasn't the only one. Julie, too, was not just traveling for a diversion, but also making a life change. She was notionally heading towards Australia, but even that wasn't 100% certain. And she was definitely wrestling with the question of, what's next? And that didn't mean from which city or sightseeing spot to hit next. 
At least from what I saw, this question was weighing on her more and more. What was her next life move going to be? Also, after making it to Bali, I had to start my exit strategy to make sure I could get back to Thailand before my visa expired. See, all my money and stuff is sitting in Bangkok from previous episodes. If time had not been an issue, maybe I would have gone on to Sulawesi as Julie had planned, or the more obvious step to continue east towards Lombok, which, at the time, travelers were doing to get away from the overly touristed Kuta Beach. Fortunately for me, though the infrastructure of all the tourist trappings of hotels, high-end stores, the Hard Rock Cafe, and discotheques were all there, the number of visitors was noticeably low, so after Julie and I parted, I headed towards Kuta Beach for a few days to surf. Also, when we parted, for the first time, I was traveling without a guidebook. The lonely planet we had been using had been Julie's, and she kept custody of it after our separation. In that pre-smartphone era where you didn't have the whole world in your pocket at all times, having a static and possibly unreliable lonely planet, the backpacker's bible of those days, was a must. But I had felt quite acclimated and comfortable in the country. And of course, I noted some cities and towns and sites to which I planned to visit on my way out of the country, but I just traveled without a guidebook. I just went. It could have been that I was a seasoned traveler months into my journey, but I think more than that, I just had a comfort and confidence in the country, and I felt sure I could make my way. Perhaps it was justified, or maybe it was just naive, but more than ever I felt I could just go it on my own and I could find my way. And maybe as also I trusted that if I did get lost, the wonderful people of Indonesia would help point me in the right direction. After deciding to take a hiatus from surfing, I headed up to Ubud and found an out-of-the-way guest house. I picked up a book on Bahasa, and in the mornings and afternoon, I put some time and effort into studying the language. For the record, linguistically speaking, Bahasa is considered one of the easiest languages. But to be honest, I really don't remember much of it all these years later. I definitely fondly remember the pleasure of being able to have conversations with whatever limited vocabulary I had and feeling much more connected to the people at each place I went. So a word on comfort. I told you that prior to setting off on my big trip, I thought that if things ever got rough, I could just retreat to Thailand, a familiar place of comfort. I told you how great it was to see Ava and Chuck, some familiar faces, and just have a stretch of easy living for a bit. Well, as I mentioned in my email, in Bali, I got a cut on my foot and it kind of got infected. When I left Bali, the arch of my foot had a painful pus-oozing cut, which moved quickly from mildly irritating to noticeably uncomfortable and hardly bearable. I entered the 16-hour bus ride thinking that all I needed was some rest. I had been taking walks through the Bali rice fields and marching through mud and dirt for the past couple of days, and maybe that didn't really help. As I mentioned in my email, that journey ended up being about 34 hours because, well, there were protests and riots at the docks and the ferries couldn't run, uh, some demonstrations, political unrest and turmoil, blah, blah, blah. So my plan had been to take a bus to the city of Solo. This is a new place for me to explore on the island of Java. Due to the delay, I was going to end up arriving at Solo around 1 a.m. Under normal conditions, arriving at 1 a.m. in an unfamiliar place can be a bit daunting, but this even more so when exhausted from a long bus ride with a complaining and throbbing foot. So as we pulled into the bus station at Solo, I decided not to get off the bus. See, this bus was continuing on to Jogjakarta, a familiar place. If I stayed on this bus for another hour or so, I'd arrive at a familiar place where I knew exactly where to go and what to do. In my mind, I could visualize the bus station and already see the route I would take to get to the guest house where Julie, Andreas, and I had stayed before. 
no struggle and no challenges apart from limping my way to a place of comfort. This may not seem like a controversial decision to you, but my inner critic was yelling at me, loudly. Why are you taking the easy way out, going to something comfortable and familiar instead of charging into the unknown? You love adventure. You love challenge. Push your boundaries. Move forward. Don't go backwards. You're going to a place you've been before. Why not go somewhere new? As I sat on the stopped bus, I half expected at any moment the driver to say, Hey, foreign dude, you probably don't understand what's going on here, but we're actually at the place that you bought the ticket for, and you really should get off here. But that didn't happen. The bus stopped. Some people disembarked. We waited for a bit, and we continued on our way. It was probably after 2 a.m. when I arrived in Jogja. The bus station was as I remembered, a familiar spot. As I hobbled my way to the guest house where I stayed before, I imagined the breakfast I'd be eating the next morning under one of the shaded sitting areas in the front garden. I tried not to second-guess my decision as I secured a room in bed and collapsed into deep slumber. In the morning when I woke up, I hobbled to the outdoor tables, feeling guilty as I listened to my internal voice, the voice of youthful arrogance telling me to live hard, seize the day, and push till you can't push anymore, and then keep pushing. Note, it would be years before I'd start hearing the wisdom of maturity telling me that self-care and recovery is paramount. I sat at a table, the same table Julie and I had sat at many times before. I looked across the dirt road towards the pool at which Julie and I had splashed around after a day of exploration. I looked over in the garden to the large wooden chairs where I'd seen Andreas relaxing times before. All was as I remembered, including Andreas in the wooden chair. Oh, wait! That's Andreas! He's here! Andreas had also arrived in the middle of the night, back from some exploration on his own, and though he didn't have an aching foot, he also decided to pass back through Jogja. Maybe it was too soon for me to learn a direct lesson about the importance of taking care of oneself and not feeling guilty about taking the easy way out, but I was certainly rewarded by my return to Jogja. The next few days, Andreas and I explored the area and had exactly those kinds of experiences we both wanted out of travel. We rented bicycles, we rode through the surrounding areas, we, we had mixed English Bahasa conversations with all the smiling folks we met, we found ourselves invited into people's homes, and even invited into a tobacco processing plant. Well, maybe we kind of barged our way in, but they didn't seem upset by this. And we found ourselves helping the workers sift through tobacco and loading supplies. We got caught in the pouring rain and crammed into local buses, making great conversation with everyone we met. We made our way to Jakarta, and I felt like a veteran, showing Andreas all the places I had known, including the infamous Tanamur nightclub that Julie and I had gone to a couple of times. You know, I'll never know what amazing adventures I didn't get by missing out on a visit to Solo, but my return to Jogja and being reunited with Andreas resulted in an incredible part of an already incredible two months in Indonesia. So it was clearly the right decision. Anyways, I can always go visit Solo next time, when I go back. Because, dear listeners, I am going back. I just can't quit you, Indonesia. You know, in my last episode, check it out. I talked about how I'm now fortunate enough to have friends in places all around the world that I didn't necessarily have 20 years ago. And that while I treasure the adventures charging into an unknown land on my own with no connections, I now have the luxury of friends in many places. Well, Indonesia is one of those places. I'm lucky enough to know a lot of really great people there. And I look forward to seeing them the next time I go. And you know what's really cool? In case I have another foot issue when I'm there, one of those people, she's a doctor.
That's it for this episode of the J-Luck Club. I'd better close this meeting before it goes on longer than one of those Indonesian bus rides I took. As always, I appreciate your time and attention, and thank you for joining me on this journey. We're almost done, folks. Time to take that final trip to the lavatory before I turn on the fasten seatbelt sign and tell you to raise your tray tables to prepare for landing. Yes, our trip is coming to an end. Seems like a good time to pick up a souvenir or two. Remember our time together. Head on over to honeyroastedtshirts.com. Check out the souvenir shop. Pick up some stickers, magnets, pins, postcards. But no t-shirts. As you know, Honey Roasted t-shirts, they don't make t-shirts. But if they did, they'd be honey roasted. T-shirts aside, pick up some souvenirs. Check out the membership welcome kit. Or get the dollbot ditty. Support the show. Are you a member of the JLUC Club? Would you like to be? If so, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and visit the aforementioned honeyroastedtshirts.com to check out more. In our next episode, I head back to Thailand, going north to participate in the biggest, baddest water fight in the world. But don't worry, dear listeners, I didn't go into battle alone. I finally crossed paths with Justin and Dan again. You know, the guys who convinced me to shave my head and shove poorly chosen metal in my ear in Kathmandu? If you listen to this podcast, or if you've read the emails or visit the blog, or maybe you've heard me tell that story about that time I opened up a J-Luck Club podcast souvenir shop on honeyroastedtshirts.com, well, you just might be a member of the J-Luck Club. Thank you for staying tuned to Journal Extras. Been going on a long time, so I'll try and keep this short. February 16th. Peanut butter sandwiches and tea for breakfast. Head to meet one of Julie's mother's friends in an out-of-the-way neighborhood in Jakarta. Lots of food. Lots of food. Invited to a two-year-old's birthday party tomorrow. Cool. February 17th. Take our time in the morning, go shopping for a gift for the two-year-old. We are picked up for what is almost a two-hour ride to the birthday party. It is quite the family affair. More than 80 people. Good food. Fun to see. Afterwards, Julie and I go to Tanamur Night Spot. February 19th. Meet another one of Julie's mother's friends. Two-hour bus bemo trip to her home. Nice woman. Young spirit, we eat. Head to Block M to meet another friend. Someone Julie hasn't seen for 15 years. Fun to see. Go to cafe, shopping. Go to Club Retro. It's a cool club, but empty on a Monday night. There's nearly 20 employees for the eight guests who are there. We dance a bit. It's a fun day. February 20th to Jogja. Up early for the train. Nice ride. Once in Jogja, go to Metro Guest House. There's a swimming pool, free breakfast, internet. We are set. This would be the guest house that I returned to on my way back through. We swim, we eat at a restaurant called Little Amsterdam. And then Julie sees Andreas, a guy she had met in Laos. That's the great thing about travel. So she'd met this German guy in Laos, and here he was in Jogja in Indonesia. February 21st. After dinner, we go to a music show. 
We are the only three in the audience, so afterwards they let us play with the instruments. February 23rd. We bicycle to Prambanan. We use main roads, we use side roads, we use back roads, we use no roads. It's super cool. There are no tourists here. The temples are okay. Then we see one group, there's a restoration in progress. We hop a fence to get in, we feel really cool. Then we realize the other gate was open, we didn't have to hop the fence. Everywhere we go, everyone is waving and smiling at our foolish selves. February 26. Up at 6 a.m. to do last-minute packing, check out the steaming Mount Merapi from the roof. Uh, that was the volcano. They had some explosions, uh, and sometimes you could see lava flow, steam, uh, eruptions, not explosions. February 27th, up at 3.30 a.m. Take a jeep to sunrise viewpoint overlooking the Bromo Crater. You know, volcanoes you see at sunrises, that's just a thing. Climb up to the crater, it is steaming. March 1st. Is it March already? I go to get my head shaved, but this time I ask them to do it with clippers instead of a blade. It saves like a day or two of growing. That's the thing is I'd gotten my head shaved a few times, but they always use the blade. And then like the first couple days after with the hair starting, to, the stubble starting to grow out. It, anyways, I just figured clippers was easier. Meet back up with Julie on the beach. She discovers, and now tells me, Bali is one hour ahead of Java time. Huh, we didn't even notice. Wander around Ubud, checking out the galleries, the shops. I buy a Bahasa Indonesia book. On my porch, I read for a bit and write for a bit. Yes, this is what I'd hoped for in Bali. I look across the way to the grandma of the family who runs the guest house. She's topless. That's not what I had hoped for. Okay, so let me just say here, because I referenced in my email. So there's some, there's no expectation or demand of, of me that anyone be topless, but this decades old poster, like a, a travel poster, I think it was Dutch, from the old Dutch days that was from another lifetime uh, of, I guess, advertising to, to the Dutch or to the Europeans. Hey, come to Bali. It's paradise. Local women walking around topless. You know, that sort of concept or construct. So I made reference to that in my email, sort of jokingly, like, hey, where's all the topless women? Well, what's really funny is this is a joke in my head. And then, so when I was sitting on my porch and the grandmother or the uh, was sitting there in the hot sun and she just literally just flew off her top, I thought, yeah, something about that just seems right. I guess they told me to expect it. Anyways, I've taken up a lot of your time. I could keep reading, and I probably will keep reading on my own, but uh, I'm just going to end that here. So thank you very much for staying tuned to Journal Extras. Don't worry, none of this will be on the exam. See you next time. But for now, I think I'm done, done, done.